Good morning. We hope that during the period of the quarantine that we've been in, that uh, as we've put the videos online for you, that they've been a support to you, that they have been an encouragement, and that as you followed along with the preaching of our church, we've uh, been able to keep you rooted in that word that God has given to us to be a support as we endure any and all of life's trials and challenges. Being exposed to godly preaching of the word reminds us that he is sovereign and that he can help us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, last week we started a brand new series in the five solos of the Protestant Reformation. And we will continue that today by taking a look at the first of the five solas, Sola Scriptura. And so to begin, uh, I'd like to address uh, the logical elephant in the room. As we discussed last week, the word sola is Latin. And in the Latin, it means alone. Yet there are five solas. If sola means alone, shouldn't there only be one? Isn't that like getting four of your best friends together to start a rock band and then calling yourselves the Lone Rangers? Kind of doesn't make sense, right? While there definitely is some irony in the five solas formula, it is not a contradiction, and I want to explain why before we get into sola scriptura today. Last week we discussed how the five solas represent the core elements of one family of doctrine, the doctrine of salvation. During a time in history when the church had allowed tradition to encumber the, the work of God to hinder the truth of our Lord, faithful believers fought to bring the people of God back into theological foundation and to strip away the man-made additions that obscured the truth of the, of, of the gospel that God had revealed to them. Each of the solas set the theological foundation for a different aspect of salvation. How do we learn of our need for salvation? We do that through the scripture. Only scripture can show us how we might be saved by God. How does God overcome our sin and erase our debt? Only by his merciful grace can we have our debt erased. And how does man come to that amazing grace of God? We can only come to it through faith. It's not something that we earn by our merit. It is something that we trust in simply because it is the only way to salvation. What is the object of our hope in salvation? Jesus Christ alone is the object of our hope. It is only by his perfect blood that we might be washed clean from our sin. And who receives glory for man's redemption? To God alone be the glory for this great redemption. So the five solas are five statements, but they all speak to different aspects of the same reality. The five are in heart and soul one. They're like five musical notes that make up a chord. Each is true. Each pertains to its own particular subject. But apart from one another, they lack context. Together, they ground the faith of a Christian and secure that faith against many of the corruptions that would contaminate the truth. With a God who himself exists as three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it should be no surprise to us that these five solas are individually foundational and yet at the same time, they work together to give us the whole picture of the gospel. In breaking down each of the five solas, we will begin with sola scriptura. 
For what can be known of the other five can only be known through the words that God has revealed to us in His Scripture. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, gives us a standard, a standard by which we make judgments about what is right and wrong, a standard by which we decide what is the difference between what is good and what is best. So where do we start? If we believe Scripture alone contains the answers, then there's only really one way we can start. We must start at Scripture itself. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to another young elder, preparing him for some of the hardships that he will encounter as he serves God and stands for the truth. Paul warns Timothy in this chapter that he will have to be aware of the sinfulness of man and how it is constantly trying to corrupt the truth and creep into the ideas of those who dwell and populate the church. Those who refuse to allow error to creep in will experience opposition for their faithfulness to God's Word. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and postures will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, he says. So in verse 16, Paul reminds Timothy of the means by which God enables his people to protect themselves from the confusion of the world and to gain understanding that they can trust. So we are in chapter 3. We're going to read verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's take a moment and let's ask the Lord to bless our time together in His Word. Mighty God, you are holy. And that we would not have any chance of knowing you had you not revealed yourself to us. And Father, we can see here this morning that the one way you have decided to reveal yourself to us that is so very special, so is, that is so very important is your holy word. And we don't want to take your word lightly, God. So give us a great reverence for the things you have given to us. I pray that as I preach uh, this sermon today that I would add nothing to Scripture that does not just draw our attention again to the Scripture. I pray that you would, you would keep me from getting in the way of your truth. Let not the preacher obscure the power of the Word, but rather I, I pray, God, that we would put it on a lampstand this morning, that we would, we would admire it, that it would provide light to our lives, God, that we might live more obediently and fully to your will. We praise you and thank you, God, for all that you give to us, and we ask that you would dwell with us as we meditate on your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 establishes several essential features of God's scripture. First of all, we begin with the word all. All scripture. And that means that every syllable of God's special revelation is vitally important to us. We cannot relegate any part of it to the novelty bin. Old Testament, New Testament, God has given us His Word. And its pages contain the essential information that mankind needs in order to understand life, to contemplate truth, and to even begin to understand the magnificent God who created us and reveals Himself to us. That's why we as a church 
preach the whole counsel of God. We don't just focus on a very narrow section of the scriptures, but rather we look to the whole of the word in order to have a better, more full understanding of the things that God desires for us. That's why we work through it verse by verse on Sunday mornings. We are committed to to looking carefully, not just at the, the verses that you might find on a card at a Christian bookstore, but every verse of scripture because it is all vital to us. That's why we need to desire more than just a bumper sticker understanding of our faith. Every word of scripture carries eternal significance. None of it is wasted. So we begin with this concept of all. And secondly, we see that because scripture is theonoustos, because it is breathed out by God, these words originate with him. And they are themselves the words of life. 2 Peter verse uh, 19 through 21 of chapter 1. The apostle writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There are many men who held a pen or a quill in their hand. And they wrote the scripture down for the very first time. Men like Moses, men like Samuel, men like Matthew and Luke. But these men were not engaging in a creative work of the human mind. They were being used by the hand of God to communicate and codify exactly what the Lord desired His people to hear. So when you read the words of Scripture, you are literally reading the words of God. And they are not just ordinary words. How does Paul, who is carried along by the Holy Spirit here, how does he describe the word itself? He describes it as God-breathed. Now that word in the Greek is very interesting. It's theonoustos. This is a compound word. Theo means God. Noustos means spirit, which is the same word in the Greek as wind or breath. God-spirited, breathed to life by God. So everything pertaining to life and godliness comes from the living word, which is life-giving and authored by the giver of life himself. Thirdly, we see here as we break down this passage in, in 2 Timothy 3, we see that all scripture is therefore profitable. Considering where it comes from, none of it is wasteful whatsoever. It is worth your time. Now, when we use that term profitable, we're not primarily talking about money. Though the word speaks extensively about money, and there is some incredibly important wisdom that can be gleaned from the pages of Scripture regarding finances, some who are able to see that there is power in this book have exploited it in ways that have made them a fortune, which, ironically, is greatly unfortunate If you pick up this book only because you see it as a secret to worldly success and wealth, then you are missing the much greater gift that God intends it to be for you. It is not just simply a means 
to prosperity. But in what ways then is it profitable? We don't have to speculate. 2 Timothy tells you how it is profitable. It sets the parameters, if you will, of this sola's scope and its impact in the Christian's life. The range of its profitability is lined out here. There may be more ways that the Word of God is profitable, but let us not push beyond what is spoken here in this passage. Instead, listen to the Scripture as it defines itself. God's Word is useful for teaching. That means the Word of God educates us. It helps us to go from ignorance to understanding. It is useful for teaching. And not just random facts or trivia. It teaches us things that are incredibly important because it teaches us about the God who brings us life, the God who granted us a mind that can understand. So this word is extremely profitable for teaching people so they might, might mature and might become greater in wisdom and knowledge. It is useful and profitable for reproof so that we might judge between what is true and what is false. The third function or profitability of the word is very similar to the second. It is useful for correction. There are times in the life of a man or a woman who is stained by the sin of Adam that we need to be brought back into the light because we have wandered off into the darkness. And God's word is a beautiful tool for this. It helps to correct our path when our path becomes crooked. It is useful for training in righteousness. Not that we would only know good things, that we might be able to put them to good use. We are trained by the word so that we might live and speak and think and feel and walk and serve in ways that are glorifying to God and honor the image of God that has been built into his people. So this word is greatly profitable to us. And then fourthly, Scripture helps the man of God to be what God intends him to be. It helps the man of God to become complete. Now, no man is perfect, but God can make man be what he intends him to be. He can fulfill the design that he gave to us by helping us understand the truth through his word. So it completes us. It fills in the gaps. It, it overcomes the brokenness of sin that we have in our lives. And it does this by equipping us. It equips us for every good work that God intends for us to accomplish. There is no good work that Scripture cannot train you for. This is the essence of discipleship. That by God's means, man might return to what God made him for. Faithful service and worship unto the King. A preacher could say so many important things about the Word of God, but one of the most important things that could be said about Scripture is this. Scripture is sufficient. It is enough, Christian. Sufficient for what, you may ask? Sufficient to do the very thing that it intends to do. It is not a detailed science manual, though you will find science throughout. Though you will see very, very many proofs and, and, and uh, verifications of scientific law in its pages. But it is not a science manual primarily. It does not intend to be a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just a practical manual for walking through life. Although it is very practical when it is applied properly. 
even though it has many moral guidelines and boundaries, that's not the only thing it intends to do. Scripture does not intend to answer your every curiosity. There There are many questions probably that spring up in your mind that the Word will not speak to. So what does Scripture intend to do? It intends to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train in righteousness. And it is perfect at doing these things. It does them for a purpose, so that every man may be complete and equipped for every good work. If God's Scripture is true, and it is, then no one has a secret doctrine that needs to be added to it. No previously unrevealed principles exist that will enhance it. And if it is sufficient, then anything that contradicts it is a hindrance to the real valuable growth and life that is found within its pages. Furthermore, it is not only able to accomplish God's purposes in building up disciples, it will accomplish those purposes. Did you hear it in our call to worship this morning? I hope that you read that as a family together. Isaiah 55 verses 10 through 11 says, For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It shall succeed. So God's word is not only able to accomplish what it is given to us for, it will accomplish it. Those that God draws to himself will by all means be saved and redeemed to Him. They will experience the blessing of a right relationship with God by the blood of the Lamb. Likewise, those who reject Jesus as Savior will, without a doubt, be condemned by the law. Apart from Christ, we have no hope to be near to God unless it is to draw near to Him so that He might render judgment upon our lives. Every human being has committed sin against the Savior. Every human being has mishandled God's true commands. And so it is a glory that God has given to us His Son, a means by which we might have our guilt washed away. God will judge sin. And the righteousness of Christ will cover those sinners whose faith rests in Jesus. To hold sola scriptura means that we reject the notion that anything else is essential for our understanding of God's salvation. We don't need a pope to tell us how to read the Word of God. We don't need a degree from seminary to understand what these words mean. We don't need the notes at the bottom of our study Bible to know the Word. We need the Word itself. Are there things, Christian, outside of the Word that can be helpful to us? Yes, there are. There are many men who have blessed me in my maturity and growth in the Word. There are many books that I have read outside of the pages of Scripture that point my attention back to Scripture and and shine light on it in ways that I hadn't seen before. 
Also, we would be foolish to ignore the fact that other believers indwelled by the Holy Spirit might know more of the Word than we do, or they might know it better than we have come to know it. So yes, there are things outside of Scripture that can be helpful to us. Those other things can be very beneficial. But when we get into this mindset that we can't know the things of truth without a commentary set or without the opinion of some well-known author, if we have it in our minds that we cannot know the word apart from a man with a collar or some professional clergyman, then we've made a huge mistake. What are we doing when we insist on something beyond what Scripture declares? When we believe that we need something other than the Scripture, then we are revealing our low view of God's Word. Because we're indicating that people need what God did not lovingly provide. What did He lovingly provide for us? He gave us His Scripture. And if we go beyond that, then what we are essentially saying is that, God, you have not given us enough. This book, God declares through the Apostle Paul, is sufficient for us to equip us for every good work. When we try to go beyond what the Scripture says, we're committing grave error. Look at how Galatians 1, 6 through 9, warns us in this regard. The Apostle Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, then let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This, of course, is the very stern introduction to the small letter we call Galatians, where the Galatian church, who had received the truth of the gospel, had received God's word by the mouth of Paul and the other apostles that went there to begin the church in Galatia. They had the truth, and yet others had come in after Paul, and then the the apostles had moved on, and began teaching that not only did they need the gospel that Paul talked about, but they also needed works. They needed to trust in the codified law of Moses. They needed to take upon themselves circumcision. They needed to add their own faithful deeds to the work that Christ did on the cross. In essence, what they were saying is what God delivered to us through the apostles was not enough. You need this other level of obedience. You need to prove your righteousness by working it out before the Lord God. And when he sees that what you have done is enough, then the work of the cross will qualify for you. What gospel were the Galatians starting to turn to? Not an entirely different gospel, was it? It was a gospel that spoke of Jesus and revered him and honored him, but it was a gospel that said, you need Jesus and something else. You need to add to the word of God. And to add to the gospel, friends, is to turn away from it completely. The next three solas that we will study in the weeks to come will zero in on the heart of the gospel message, which is salvation by grace alone, 
through faith alone in Christ alone. This is the core of what we preach here and what we believe. It is the hope that we have. It is the reason why we believe God has made us into new creatures since we have trusted in Jesus Christ. And when you add clauses and qualifications to that which God declares about His salvation, you don't just weaken the gospel. You abandon it entirely by making it what it is not. So don't miss the power of Paul's warning here. He says, even if we, meaning the apostles, this is not a Paul thing. It is a God thing. Even if an angel, this is only a God thing. If an angel from heaven or any of the apostles that you formerly trusted, if they try to change the word of God by adding to it, let them be accursed. All we need is God's scripture. The message of salvation is something that transcends the apostles. It is bigger than the angels. It is outside of them. And yet here we find it, codified in the word of God. It is outside of the apostles, but it is inside God's word. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 36 through 38 says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Understand what you're hearing here. Paul indicates that he is writing not his own insights. This is not his thesis statement. He is writing the very commands of God himself. Someone who denies what Paul is writing as the words of God would himself be denied by the apostles because Paul is simply a messenger here bringing to the people what God has declared that they need. We see in the book of Jude, a wonderful little book uh, that helps us to understand the dangers of, of false prophecy. We see a similar warning in verses 3 and 4 of this one chapter letter. Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Do you see how he described the gospel there? He said, I write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. Such a definitive description of our salvation. There is no need for appendixes. There is no need for amendments to the gospel that we have been given through the scriptures. There is no need for revisions or additions. Once and for all. No less, no more. In fact, anything more is a perversion of the truth. So consider, my friends, Consider this morning your personal attitude towards the scripture of God. How do you feel about God's word? What do you think of it? Do we understand the word of God to be a finished product? Or do we consider it to be a great starting point? Do we consider it 
merely a bag of tools by which we may build our best truth? Or is it the truth itself in the form that God desired to give it to us? The Word of God is the only eternal Word. So why do we as human beings tend to shrink away from it? Why do we not seek it with our whole heart? Why do we not desire it more than gold and silver? Why do we shrink away from the Word of God? I think perhaps part of the reason why we shrink away from the Word of God is that everything else in life for us is fluid to some degree. We're so used to dealing with ever-changing circumstances. We're dealing with people who are never the same one day from the next. We are discovering with limited intellect, what the world is all about day by day. So with everything else, there is always what seems to be an exception to the rule. And we tend to recoil away, therefore, from that which is rigid, from that which is eternal. It is too grand for us to grasp. And so we tend to be defensive towards God's Word because it is so unique and so different from everything else that we find in life. But what a great blessing we forfeit when we approach the Word of God the way that we approach life. If we approach the Word of God as if nothing is entirely sure, as if all possibilities are equally possible, then we are missing out on the blessing of God's truth, which stands and is firm and never changes. Without the rigidness of unwavering universal truth that we find in God's Word, without the steadfastness of the unchanging Word of God, we cannot experience reality with any kind of depth or significance. Think about this in terms of our personal relationships, friend. Why is marriage the most significant human relationship? Because it is definitive. Until death do us part. From this day forward to the end of my story, I commit by oath to love you sacrificially. I will love you in an exclusive way. No one else in the world will get this kind of love from me that I have from you. That is so big to us. And sadly, we have taken the institution of marriage and watered it down because we can't even handle that kind of a, of a lifelong commitment. It is so much more significant than the kinds of relationships we often see people engaging in in the, in the world that we live in. How can a person expect to get an equivalent gravity and meaning and purpose from, you know what, I sure do like you right now, and I hope I continue to like you, and if we ever start to like someone else better, then at least we'll always know we had these few years where we were focused on each other. Does that sound significant? Does that sound meaningful? doesn't sound like a promise at all to me. The two don't compare. Marriage and cheap relationships don't compare. One is noble, one is enduring, one is selfless. The other is temporary and fickle and self-centered. Likewise, the Word of God is not a book full of suggestions or wise platitudes that we may apply however is useful to us, rather the Word of God, Holy Scripture, is breathed out by a God who is never wrong. It is spoken by a God who can only speak eternal truth. 
And so every word of it should be to us like an anchor that will hold firm, that can never be shaken loose. Without the faithful, enduring word of God, our knowledge is nothing more than a series of temporary, disposable evaluations of what we perceive with our senses. And if we are honest with ourselves, each of our personal evaluations is biased and tainted and influenced by the evaluations of other people. The passage that we began with in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, was preceded by a warning against the kind of natural sinfulness that draws, away from, draws us away from the, the surety of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 5, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. The first words there tells us this is what it's going to be like in the last days. And if you think in immediately of the tribulation, if you think immediately of when Christ returns, then you might be missing up on the fact that all those descriptions that Paul lists for us there readily describe the world that we live in today. In a very real sense, friends, we are in the last days. We are waiting for the return of Christ. And in these last days, this is the kind of corrupt approach to life that mankind has displayed. The condition of the heart of man is such that man naturally loves pleasure, fleeting pleasure, rather than loving God. This may even be masked by an outward appearance of spirituality that carries some semblance of godliness but denies the power of true godliness. What is the power of godliness? You see it. You see it when people walk by the Spirit according to God's Word. When they walk equipped by God's Word, ready to do every work of righteousness that He prepared way ahead of time for Him to do, you see that truth. You see it. But the natural heart of man, a heart that is cold to the things of God, denies what He has revealed in His Word. His law is not a blessing to that kind of a broken heart. It is an inconvenience, a roadblock to acquiring selfish pleasures. Those who think that way, friends, we are told here to avoid them. And we should also avoid becoming such people by letting our hearts be fixed on the fleeting things of life rather than the eternal things of God's word. When the Holy Spirit gives a sinner a new heart, then regeneration occurs. And suddenly that which we loved so naturally, the fleeting things that fall away, that are constantly slipping through our hands, those aren't the things that we love the most anymore. When God regenerates a woman or puts a new heart in a man, then they begin to love the eternal things of God. They begin to love the Scripture. 
But that love must be cultivated, friends. Let us pray that God will increase our love for his written word. There is great consequence to abandoning sola scriptura. If we cease to hold to this anchor truth of the Christian life, if we turn away from sola scriptura, then we create a kind of truth void in our lives that we will inevitably try to fill with something less worthy than God's word. And there are many ways that this can impact, but let me just give you a few examples of how a life that is not sola scriptura can be undermined and corrupted. When we, when we turn our back on this, this affirmation that God's word is enough for us, then we are liable to slip towards legalism. Now you might think, no, 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 that legalism is being too focused on the word. No, that's not actually true. Legalism is looking beyond the grace that God's word continually champions and insists on us being more than what God insists on us being. Jesus Christ came and said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. In Christ, the law of God is fulfilled. Legalism occurs when man comes along and sees grace and thinks to himself, this is wonderful, but surely it can't be that easy. God wants to save us, but surely it can't just be on the merit of Christ himself. We've got to prove to him that we're worthy. Legalism adds, therefore, necessary obedience to qualify a man for the grace that God intends to give freely. You can't do this, says the legalist. Sometimes we see this in things like alcohol, where people will say, if you're a true believer, you can't drink any alcohol whatsoever. To be a real firm believer, to be a, a true Christian, you have to be completely dry from the effects of alcohol. But when we look at the scripture itself, what does scripture tell us about alcohol? It doesn't say that alcohol is the defining mark of a sinner. It says, do not be drunk on wine. It says, be careful that you are sober-minded, that you do not allow wine, which itself is not evil, that you do not allow wine to bring out the evilness that is inherent in you. So the legalistic mind says, if you're going to be holy, you have to cut that out of your life completely, whereas Scripture is enough for us, and it says something different. It says, let the authority of God Dictate how you use wine. Dictate how you drink and eat and enjoy the wonderful blessings of this life. So legalism says, you can't do this when the scripture never says that you can't do this. The scripture also might say, you have to do this even though the scripture doesn't demand that you do it. We see this kind of legalism in, in people's demanding that you give a tithe to the Lord God. You must give 10% if you're going to be in good standing with the Lord. When in reality, the scripture in the new covenant does not tell us that that's required of us. We are taught to give to the Lord's work in the New Testament. But how are we taught to give to the Lord's work? We're taught to, to pray and to ask guidance and that as God purposes in our hearts, that is how we should give that we should give generously and consistently, that we should give abundantly and with joy. But you look in the New Testament and, and, and the Apostle Paul is not demanding that the apostles put aside and that the, that the, the, the saints put aside 
a certain percentage of their income for his glory and that if you fall below, then you're somehow not truly faithful to the Lord. Friends, there is freedom in letting the the word of God speak to us and not insisting that we go beyond and that we fill in blanks that God sees we don't need filled in. In so long as those are rules that I can readily keep, the legalist thinks, then I walk away feeling justified beyond my brother and proud that I have gone above and beyond in the honor of God. But really, if we add anything to the word of God, we have not gone above and beyond in a way that makes God proud. Rather, we have gone below. We have fallen short because we cannot go above and beyond what the Lord commands us to do. When we insist on doctrines that do not flow from the pages of God's scripture, then we do violence to the word of God. Here is another danger of forsaking this concept of sola scriptura. We might fall into the idolatry of our leaders. Let me explain what I mean by that. When the enduring word of God is marginalized, when we don't think of the scripture as enough for us, then mankind's desire for certainty will often cause him to think too highly of whatever human mentor he sits under. Man will often try to satisfy their need for a standard for objective truth by clinging to the most convincing leader they can find. And I purposely do not say the best leader they can find. Apart from the sure truth of God, doctrine has to be sold. It has to be peddled. You have to convince people to like it. It needs to have an ear-tickling power in order to allure the person that hears it. And there will always be people who are eager to profit from God's word in all the wrong ways by speaking beautiful language that tells people what they want to hear and speaking it so confidently that people believe this man must be telling the truth by making their cunning minds into the idol that displaces God's word in our lives, they rob glory from God. Sola Scriptura guards us from this. It takes the man off of his high horse and puts him on equal ground with those whom he teaches. For we are all under the word of God. So too was the apostle Paul. And that is why he told the Galatian church, even if we, the apostles, were to preach a scripture, were to preach a gospel rather, that was different than what you heard the first time, then let us be accursed. If we turn our backs on sola scriptura, we are very vulnerable to elevating our leaders beyond what they should be in our lives. Thirdly, if we do not see the scripture as sufficient for us in all things, then we will begin to slide towards liberalism. This is the most obvious danger of forsaking sola scriptura, and it is the most common one. When we marginalize the scripture and fail to think of it as enough for us, then we give ourselves room and intellectual permission to build doctrines of our own design and pass them off as God's design. We let our own hearts become the compass that we trust to lead us. But your own heart doesn't know true north. If you know true north, it is because the Lord God has shown you true north. Without God's scripture as our standard, how can we have any hope of finding the way? 
You know, if you've watched many movies, especially action films, you've probably seen a scene where a police officer is in hot pursuit of a bad guy. He's trying to chase down a criminal, and the criminal somehow gets himself into a vehicle and takes off. And that police officer, in a moment of desperation, knows that if he doesn't do something drastic, he's going he's gonna to lose him. He's going to miss out on this arrest. And so what does he do? He pulls out his badge. He stops the nearest car, and he says, Official police business. I need your vehicle. Is that even legal? I don't even know if police today in the real world have the authority to do that, but you see it in the movies all the time, right? The idea behind it is that justice is so important that your personal rights of possession take a back seat. And so that police officer gets to commandeer your vehicle for the greater good of society. Now listen, friends, there is no greater good than God's redemptive will. But sadly, the heart of man often values other things above that. And when he does, look out. Because the heart of man will try to commandeer the scripture. They will, with their great passionate heart towards the thing that they think is most important, will take the word of God and twist it around to try to be the support for what they think is most important. When in reality, the Lord's word is focused primarily on God's glory through the redemption of his lost sinful mankind. Do not allow your heart to commandeer the word of God and to make it be a champion for something that it doesn't intend to be a champion for and guard against that happening from others in your life as well. Do not let other teachers try to make the word of God something that it is not. This is the essential violation of liberalism that we try to make the word of God say what it doesn't really say. When you begin to worship the Lord and conduct your lives in ways that don't square with the scripture, it's like building a retaining wall. But in, on occasion, instead of using real bricks, you use foam blocks and you just keep on building your wall. Eventually, the weight of the wall itself becomes so great that those false bricks that only appear to be blocks begin to crumble under the weight and eventually the whole wall falls down. Friends, we cannot build our faith on anything less than the sure and steady truth that God reveals to us in Scripture. So it is the duty of the Christian to see the Word of God to be what only the Word of God is. But before we conclude, let us take a moment to also think about what Scripture is not. What sola Scripture is not. It is not the only book that tells the truth. Sola Scriptura does not mean that we get to go off and burn every other book on our bookshelves and think that we have everything that we need and that, that there is no other way that God can, can give us insights or that God can help us to learn something about life. All other human authority and insight might be useful in understanding and teaching and defending the Scripture, but are subject to the Scripture alone as the final authoritative decisive word of God. Scripture doesn't speak explicitly about every single topic in the world. In fact, there are many things you want to know about that the word of God probably doesn't share information on at all. 
Our toilet broke in the men's bathroom here at church this week. I didn't pick up my Bible and thumb through it to try to figure out how to fix the valve on the back. No, the Bible doesn't speak to every single topic. And it doesn't intend to be a manual for fixing toilets. It is not an indictment against creeds or statements or, uh, of faith. These things are useful, but cannot displace the Scripture and are really only beneficial so much as they are built upon the right foundation, Scripture itself, with the right materials, faithfulness. Let's take a look at how the London Baptist Confession of 1689 begins. This is an example of a historical confession of the faith. It begins like this. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Now, the London Baptist Confession goes on to talk in detail about a number of important Christian doctrines, but it begins here. It begins by showing us that although we can see evidence of God in all that He has made, when you look at the grandeur of the mountains, when you look at the vastness of the sea, when you see the intricacies of the ecosystem, when you look at the details of the human body, you see evidence upon evidence that creation is no accident that a divine being put into motion something with purpose and design. You can see that from Scripture or from the nature. But you can't know God apart from the special revelation that He gives to us in Scripture. The London Baptist Confession starts with the Word of God because it wants to establish up front that anything that it has to say of any value as a historical document is derived from Scripture itself. It flows out of the Word of God. The LBC is a very useful document, but it cannot replace the Scripture from which it is derived. Creedless faith, by the way, doesn't really exist. Some people say, my only creed is the Bible. Well, that sounds really holy on the outside, but in, in regards to the way that man sees the Bible, everyone has an understanding and interpretation of Scripture, don't they? When we dash away creeds and written confessions, we exchange them for something else. We exchange them for the untestable, unsearchable creed that we have in our own head. We pretend that our own interpretation of the infallible word is some, somehow infallible as well. Nearly all cults, by the way, begin with a Bible in someone's hand. We have to be able to check and balance one another and compare our thoughts against each other and against the standard of God's Word in responsible ways. So creeds and confessions are not terrible. In fact, they can be extremely useful to us. They help us to understand if we stand on common ground but they cannot replace the Scripture. And they are not as essential to us as the Scripture has to be. I love what Douglas Van Dorn says. He says, Sola Scriptura does not eliminate traditions. It subordinates them on matters that Scripture speaks to 
And on matters that it does not, it refuses to make them binding dogma or to use them to harm God's people. So as we conclude, I, I want to issue a challenge to you, to God's church. The scripture alone, do you receive it? Do you accept it? Do you believe it to be what it claims to be? Do you trust the word of God? God does not present to you an ideological buffet from which you may walk along and pick and choose what appeals to you. You either take the word of God for what it is, you accept it, or you reject the word of God. If you determine that you are going to take the parts that you like and ignore the parts that you don't like, what you have done is reject the word of God. You cannot take it in part. It is his in whole and it is yours in whole or it is not yours at all. If you have accepted and received God's word to be true, how does it impact your heart? John 14, 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So this is ultimately a matter not of just the mind, but of the heart. 1 John 2, 5 through 6 but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, in Christ Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So think about this in terms of your own faith. When you are in conflict with God's word, does that conflict grieve you? Do you feel extremely uneasy because you know the one sure thing in your life is the word that God spoke out and gave to us through the writing of his prophets and fathers and apostles? Do you feel grieved when your actions grieve the word of God? If you have accepted and received God's word to be true, it should grieve you to trample upon it. If you trust that the God of creation is competent, then you must see that he is able to express himself to his mankind that he has made in competent ways. If the Bible is not his, if you can't trust it, then what does that say about your view of God? It means you think that he's not able. He's not able to provide instruction, and a clear path for his people to follow. Or it says that you believe you are abler than him, more able to overcome the truth with our lies than he is to defend the truth. Such a notion is blasphemous and arrogant and it is punishable by hell. And so friends, let us subordinate our hearts to the word of God, for it is how he reveals himself to us. Jeremiah 6.10 says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Church, let this never be said of us. May we see the word for what it is. God's sufficient and eternal message to those of us whom he loves. 
and how we can be near to Him if we trust in the Son, Jesus Christ. We can be near to Him through His Word. We can live as He lived by walking according to the words that He spoke out to guide and direct us. Bow with me for a moment as we conclude. God, we praise You for being the definitive monolithic truth that we can't find anywhere else in life. I think of the disciples when they are asked by Jesus, who do you think that I am? Other people think that I am Elijah or Moses reincarnate or some prophet. Who do you think that I am? And Peter said, speaking on behalf of the other disciples, he said, you are the very son of God. And Jesus said, that only God could have revealed this truth to Peter. We are grateful, God, that you have revealed truth to us. You do it through your word. You give us a standard, a standard that we could never have come to on our own, a standard that our corrupted hearts would have corrupted were it not for the preserving power of the Holy Spirit, keeping this word what it is throughout the ages. And so we praise you for it, Lord God. We are grateful that we are not left up to our own devices, I pray that you would forgive us of the ways that we have tried to drift from your word or the ways that we have handled it incorrectly. I pray, God, that you would be ever refining our understanding of it, Lord, that every day we might have a clearer picture of what you have given to us in your scripture. Father, help us to be satisfied in it. Help us to not long for answers to questions you don't bid us ask. But instead, Lord God, let us find fulfillment in the things that you have given. There is more here than the human mind can even contemplate. So God, let us be filled by your word. We love you. We thank you for setting the boundaries that we need to walk according to the path of righteousness. And we ask, Lord God, that you would give us the courage to do so in obedience to your word. We pray this all with the inspiration of the the Spirit, Lord, according to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.